Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and we're here today to talk about part four of the darkness that comes before. It's a spoiler-filled discussion, so uh, if you haven't read it, then don't read, don't listen, come back and listen later. So we'll I'll go around the room really quickly and give some introductions. Uh, Katerina, you want to start us off with a quick introduction? Uh, yep. Yeah. Hi, I'm Katerina. I have read the entire first trilogy, the Prince of Nothing trilogy. Uh, by R. Scott Baker, and I'm currently making my way through the uh, second series, the uh, the Aspect Emperor, and so this is a reread for me, um, which doesn't necessarily mean I always understand everything in this book, but uh, I'm trying my best. And Daniel, and I'm Daniel, and this is my third reread, I guess, and. I also don't understand everything. <laughs> so I will just try to do my best to give justice to our Scott Baker's world. Well said. Yeah, it's my second it's my second read of this book. I haven't read the second book at all yet, so that'll be really interesting because <laughs> I, I didn't know anything the first time I read this one, and I know a little bit more this time, but not nearly as much as I thought I would. So, uh, part four. This is a thing we were talking a little bit before we went live. It doesn't seem like a long part, but it's packed. Yeah, I, I don't think that necessarily a lot of things happen in this part, but we get a lot of... Um, there's a lot of psychology, so we get a lot of a lot more insight into some of the characters that we've already met. So Nior and Kallus. Um Also some new characters, important characters are introduced. Um, and uh, there's a lot of, um, we also, yeah, we also get a lot of like background on, on who they are and, and uh, like where, sort of where they're coming from. And uh, there's a lot of like psychological battles in this part, which Sometimes I've, I've, I've found myself pretty lost trying to like decipher who's who's battling who and who's who's winning over whom. So maybe you guys maybe you guys will be able to help me with it a little bit. <laughs> I don't know, maybe Kel Daniel can help us both. Kellis Kel just always wins eventually. <laughs> well, he didn't seem so sure that he, he was winning while while uh, while I was reading these chapters. He seemed pretty taken aback by uh, Nayor being so able to uh, defy his manipulations, which is not something that Kellis has been used to, um, at least with the people he's met on his way to uh, the Genuati step. Yeah, that's true. He's had 30 years to think about how he got played by Kellis's dad, so his understanding of the Dunyane is more than anyone besides the Dunyane currently. And I think Kellis even like says, what is this father, a mistake? Like he thinks he shouldn't have let Snared live because he's too smart now. That's probably another reason why Nair is so weird himself because he got manipulated by Kellis's dad and like shown the other way of things. So he's just always contemplating deeper than the ultimate whose tracks are really deep in customs. 
in history. Yeah, like we we did get to learn more about uh, Nyori's history with Moengus, uh, how they met and how that meeting impacted Nyori um, and about the relationship. Like, I mean, it's it's kind of implied that they, uh, like, basically uh, Moengus seduced Nyori and that they had some sort of if not like sexual and at least very intimate relationship between the two of them. And that uh, Moengus used that to uh, plan his escape from the Skilvendi, from the, from the Uremuk tribe and to kill, to kill uh, Nyor's father, right? Yep. Yep, that seems to be true. And just Kellis is trying to find out through his talking to Nair exactly how much his dad exposed of the Dunyans like technique and philosophies and just sickness. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. And I guess the chapter starts off with Nair, but even before that it talks about how Kellis had found himself where Nair finds him. And he I guess went to at Trithau and like formed a little cult of 47 people that he like swayed and called his little Dunyane and <laughs> took them all and fled into the wilderness and didn't make it all the way but for some reason ended up on the grave of Nair's father where Nair <laughs> found him yeah, which is uh, it's, it's pretty symptomic that uh, Nayor finds the son of his father's killer on the barrel of his own father. Um, <laughs> yeah, how how deep can coincidence coincidences be, really? Mm. And then it says like, Moingas looked at him and he looked er. Nair looked at him and he looked at Nair and they both seen Moengus in each other's eyes, which was crazy because Nair seen him visually, but Kellis just could see the recognition in Nair's reactions. I was just excited to see Kellis again because I, I must have the first, I think the first time I read it, I forgot about the prologue by the time I got to this point. This time, thanks to both of you. I remember Callus this time from the prologue. And I, oh, that's the guy from the prologue. So, yeah, I mean, we like I, we haven't seen him for some like two hundred, three hundred pages, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, and and the last time we, we we saw him, I don't think he 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 didn't even make it to Erythrow yet, right? So it's it's been a while for Callus, um, and and also, and he's traveled a pretty long distance since we last saw him. To get from Erythrow all the way to uh, to basically like the border of the the Nansor Empire. Yeah, and I did enjoy the um, you know going over what Moengus had taught, what taught had taught him about um, not taking the same path, finding your own way, um, kind of different ways of thinking that he didn't really consider before. So almost like changed his whole perspective. Kind of give some background on, on him. 
he kind of tells him that the Sylvendi worship like the trackless step, a broad open plain where they can go anywhere and there's no paths in the ground and their customs and their history make their path like a mountain pass where everyone has to go on the same path. It's not an open step like they should strive to be. Basically saying your customs aren't right now, kill your dad and I'm out of here. <laughs> and the Dunyan use truth as like a weapon so what he said isn't wrong but it's all to steer him one direction he could just as well have steered him the exact opposite direction made him even more loyal to the sylvandi because words are tricky well it's funny you say that because one of the quotes i have written down was on page 362 in my edition but it was nothing deceives so well as the truth so, yeah. and it's it's interesting and heartbreaking to see that, like for Nior, learning that truth or, or like seeing his people and his their ways through a different lens, how that actually makes him the outcast and someone who can never really return back to uh, to be like a valid member of the society because now he he's seen otherwise he sort of stepped out of the of, of, of the system and uh, like he's he spends the whole time after Moenga's leave sort of trying to get back trying to find a place among his people and uh, he just can't like they're they're not willing to accept him back because of the things he did in the past but I probably also because he's just uh he's different from them he thinks differently and you sort of see how knowing the truth breaks him like it's not a good thing for him that he can see through through the haze and through the through the sylvandi customs and habits and sort of the nonsensical part of it like it makes him an outcast and kind of the same thing happened to moingus when he initially left ishul he was gone just to check out like what the outsiders knew and how big of a threat it was and then he came back and they were like oh you're different now we don't want you here anymore you'd know too much and so they kicked Moingus out yeah and it kind of makes you uh think about what's going to happen to Callus if he uh if he succeeds in in, in killing Moingus like, will he be able to go back to the Dunyane? Or will they just cast him out as they did with Moengus? This chapter talks a little bit about the Dunyane and their philosophies, if you'll call them that. And logic is superior to all. So <clears throat> I'd say Kellis will have used like his usefulness will be up by that time. And if he's really a Dunyan, he'll probably kill himself for them. So they don't even have to waste in breath. So are you saying that uh, Moengos was a bad Dunyan in that he did not kill himself? 
I think so. <laughs> yeah. It's survival of the fittest of the Dunyan. It's logic above all other, and he broke the logic of chasing the shortest path in their eyes. Even though in Moingus's eyes, he'd probably like learned of all the lies that the Dunyan had started their belief on. No magic, no history. History's bad. And then Moingus got out and seen the connections to it all and realized that maybe the Dunyan are walking towards a dead end. Because sometimes the shortest path just ends up being a dead end in the end. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And I mean, well, the, the Dunyan, like, because they, like, use this super ultra rationality, um, like, they operate with a certain set of variables, right? But if you're isolated, then the, the set of variables that you, which you can operate is, is limited. So by uh, leaving, the, leaving the seclusion and going into the world, um, Moingas has uh, access to a lot more information than, than the other Dunyan. So maybe, you know, he's realized things that they just have not been able to calculate, you know. As they call it, <laughs> travel deeper into the absolute. He's traveled deeper into the absolute than any other Dunyan because they all only have the information that they've had for 2,000 years now. So maybe they've evolved as far as the absolute will allow. In the first part, it says that they know what way a leaf's going to fall. They know what someone's going to say before they say it. They're like living in a perfect, boring society at this point. Yeah, it's, uh, still it's a very... The absolute, they're still after it. Yeah, it's, it's a very controlled environment that they uh, inhibit. And then this part, Nair is talking to Kellis, and they talk about, like, love. Because he's, like, wondering if he'll really kill his dad. And then Kellis is like, we don't love. That's not logical. And then Snare's like, oh, yeah, that's probably true. And it also, we get, like, a little section through Kellis's eyes and he says if humans only knew what I seen and then it like talks about how he just sees 42 muscles in the face and everything behind the muscles instead of actually seeing the human face he just sees straight through it so humans are just not humans to him just animals or books to be read almost almost like a, a book hmm. and but the way he behaves later makes kind of sets up what happens later on in, in this in this part about not uh, not loving and just seeing them seeing people as just books to be read yeah um, and we also get a uh, we also get a quote which uh, explains the title of this book. I, I don't think we had it before. I think it's it's the first time we hear it in this part. 
um, where Kalos is explaining the the Danyan and how they operate, and he explains uh, he explains what the darkness that comes before is, and he says, "If you are the movement of your soul, and the cause of that movement precedes you, and how could you ever call your thoughts your own? How could you be anything but a slave to the darkness that comes before?" Um, so if you didn't know what, why this book was called the way it is, now you know. And also, that is true, but <clears throat> later on, they're discussing how they're going to like infiltrate the Holy War, and they decide that Kellis is going to say he's a prince of Atrathau, which is like a dead city, or not. Maybe it was north of that. I don't remember what the place was, but some dead city he's the prince of. And then Snare's like, oh, so you're the prince of nothing because it's just a lie built to get them into the Holy War. Snare directly yeah. calls him the prince of nothing. But also, the darkness that comes before is like a theme of the whole Second Apocalypse books. So it's not the only double entendre in this book. There's, there's lots of layers to almost everything. Was there a reference to the title in the prologue? I remember there was something being, but maybe I'm wrong. But I, I thought I remember there was a, a reference, but I couldn't remember for sure. Um, well, t technically, the little prince, like, his his dad died and everyone died around him and so he rules over a castle of nothing after he killed the little after he killed the uh, what am i thinking the guy that sings jester the... jester oh mr jester it's the guy at the beginning that touches the little boy and then the little boy kicks oh. him off the I think it was a bard, wasn't he a bard? Maybe? Yeah, a bard, a singer. Oh, bard. Yeah. And then he becomes the prince of nothing, an entire castle all to his own. Yeah, that's true. I, I didn't think of it that way, but it's uh it's true that yeah, we, we meet a prince who literally rules over nothing and nobody right in the prologue. Hmm. Um but here it refers more directly to uh to Callus. Um being able to own the nothingness that comes before people's thoughts. <clears throat> the um, the fight between with Achilles and there when they fight the tribesmen, and that's the character I'm sure we're talking about. Is is it Surrey? Is that how you pronounce it? I say Surway. Um, I don't know if it's correct. It, it, wait, let me check the book. Oh, yeah, we can always check the book. I always forget about that. It's probably Surway. I say Surway too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Surway. Yeah. Yeah, Surway. Mm -hmm. Oh, she's I only 19. Oh, yeah, God. I heard her backstory. That was rough. Yeah, kind of reminds me of like a Sansa Stark that got a bad lot in life. 
from the first time I read it, I didn't think of her like that, but this time I thought of her more. I don't think I'd read the Game of Thrones at that point. She just reminds me a little bit of Sansa at this point, just not in a good position. Yeah. Not in a good position at all. Um, I think there's there are also parallels that you can draw with uh, Esmanet in in the way that like she's a you know woman who has essentially no power, no agency whatsoever, um, and she like her body and, and 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 sex are the only tools that she has and that she can use to obtain at least any sort of like position or um, a social status. And she's sort of like she doesn't want to, but she's for she's she's put it in a situation where if she wants to have at least a bit of a good life for herself, she's she's kind of forced to uh, to, to use 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 her body um, to uh, to improve her life um, and and uh, improve it by giving giving herself to 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 the men who actually hold the power in this world. Um, But I think unlike uh, unlike Esmeret, she's uh, she maybe lacks the um, the strength of character, or or maybe it's just that like they find themselves in slightly just different circumstances. But um, I think Cerveis is much more damaged by the experiences that she's had than Esmeret is. Like despite everything, I think Esmeret seems to come out as a strong person. At the end of the at the end of the day, I don't know how you feel about sort of the differences between the the two characters. Yeah, I think that Sarway is like the young naive version of Esmnet, because Esmnet had bad things happen to her, and they obviously had devastated her. But that was thirty years ago. So she's just kind of moved beyond beyond that hurt being as powerful as it is to a younger person. And Sarway's really hopeful all the time. She just thinks that Kellis loves her and she thinks that everything's gonna end up good and she thinks that he'll kill Nair if he's real bad and she thinks well, she can save, save a little boy. Yeah, I wonder if it's some sort of a uh, Stockholm syndrome. Because um, I'll be honest, the first time I read this book, I found, I found it really difficult to empathize with Survey. Like I feel bad. I felt bad for her for all the bad, all the terrible things that were happening to her. But then I just thought that she was so weak or so so gullible and the way that she just latched onto a Kellis irritated me so much um, because like yes he's marginally nicer to her than Nayor but like he does not you know go and rape her every night but he's still there sitting at the fire watching Nayor do it and does nothing to stop him I just I was so angry that like she would not see how Kellis just did not care about her at all. Um, but reading th reading through the book this time, I feel like I have a lot more understanding for 
the things she's been through and how yeah as you said like she's she's like such a hopeful like character like she's always trying to find she's always trying to find something good in this situation and um i guess she, she doesn't really have anything else than to uh imagine that um callus is somehow going to save her even though it's uh not really anything he's done so far but he does actually in this part mayor's like leave her and Kella says no for some reason which mayor's like that's even like points out that that's uncharacteristic for a dunyan yeah but they i think their weapons around so maybe she's a weapon yeah maybe i think the, like the, the way i understood it was that Nayor thought that if they left her, the the Nansu wouldn't actually hurt her, uh, because she was not like yeah maybe they would take her as like a, a concubine, but they wouldn't kill her because she wasn't important and they were chasing after the after Nayor and, and Kalitz, so taking them with her was actually riskier for her, like it put her life in danger. But uh, I'm not sure. But it's, it's true that uh, that Callus makes the decision to to bring them with her, so maybe he has some use for her. But I'm not sure that's necessarily to uh, you know that's necessarily uh, something that uh, Serway will profit from. I'm very skeptical about that. <laughs> there's <clears throat> there's not very many people that profit from being used by the Dunyain. Lewis knows that. The 47 little Dunyain all know that by now, I think. <laughs> the, uh, the other women who are, who are with the tribesmen, they, <laughs> they kill the tribesmen and they, they beg to go with them to be their prisoners and they, uh, they don't take them, they don't take the other women with them. The, uh, Forget exactly how it's worded, but when they shoot the one in the in the mouth, with the arrow was a because to go from a prisoner to being free, and then they want to be prisoners again. They don't want to be free because what's worse? Being, being stuck in the woods, yeah, dying or being a prisoner all the way back to town. Yeah, so and then Surway was like elated because she hated her. Survey yeah. hated all of those people, really. Yeah, and we get the backstory of, of her, um, you know, when she comes into the house and she's uh, she's sold off, and and the way that the other women treated her, and because I'm guessing just because she was younger and um, you know, kind of the the fresh meat. But that was, and you you wonder what would you rather do? And that's, would you rather be on your own in this world, or would you rather be a prisoner? Yeah, I think that's live on my own or not. I don't think they have the skills to take care of themselves in the wilderness like yeah. Nair can, so they probably should follow them. Yeah, they probably have a higher chance of survival with the New York. At, at least he knows how to navigate the step. Uh, but you might also just decide to like randomly that he wants to kill them because uh, they irritate him. 
Um, but I, I mean, I, I like what you the the point you brought up about sort of the women being pitted against each other in the household. I think, like obviously, like patriarchy is a is a big theme in these books, um, and I mean, I I like I like that how he I like that he shows the sort of um, idea that like women in in in, in the sort of system where they don't really have access to power and they can only um attain it through sort of attaching those attaching themselves to men how that forces the women to instead of sort of sticking together to to fight each other and and uh, fight for for positions um and how how destructive it is for the for the women so i, I really like that little detail um yeah and about her uh blue baby that might not have been a blue baby she it's i guess it's a schrodinger's cat baby to her because she was told that it lived but ever afterwards what everyone told her it died at first why she couldn't have a kid because she's basically a slave yeah i mean it, it it's pretty tragic like the things she goes through like first her own father sells her to essentially slavery then she sort of forced to uh entertain these these uh these men then she gets pregnant and she can't even keep the baby which seems like one of the few things that actually made her happy and then the men leave and they're raided by the skilvendi and and kidnapped and they carry they they bring them through the whole step uh it's uh she she's had a pretty uh she's had a pretty rough deal handed to her um yep, and she, she's pretty young too she's still got a a lot of things that could happen to her <laughs> it her backstory and her uh her younger years and growing up and it sounded like a, it sounded like a peaceful place and and all of a sudden she just gets sold off so it was a uh, tough to read her backstory yeah i think it's maybe like one of the differences between her and esmanet uh maybe like because i from what i from what i recall i don't think that esmanet really had like a peaceful and sheltered childhood i think esmanet grew up pretty uh poor uh, and, and uh, destitute from the beginning. So I think that might also uh, maybe explain why Surway is a lot more gullible, a lot more optimistic uh, than than Esmanet, who I think is, is, is obviously older, but also I think just overall more and more skeptical of a character. And the events are so damaging to Surway where Esmanet can let a lot of things just bounce off of her she's just powerful in a certain way i guess there's yeah. lots of different kinds of powerful yeah i think uh Esmanet has a strength of character that perhaps serway doesn't um which but which doesn't mean that serway is a uh I don't know, w worse character or uh, worse of a person. 
Um, I think it's I think it's, uh, it's it's good that there is a there is a character represented here who's just you know who's weak and, and maybe uh, more more like uh, a lot of people would be in her situation. Yeah, she's a really tragic character. Yeah, without a doubt. Just one thing after another. Oh, and when they, when she kills the guy and Nair carves the swazund into her skin and tells her like what the meaning is, that was pretty powerful. We learned a lot about the Dunyan and about the Sylvendi in this part. Yeah, I thought the uh, the explanation of the Swazant was uh, is pretty interesting. Um, I mean, I think when we first hear about it, it just seems like sort of barbaric custom. Um, but here, you actually you learn that uh, like there is some meaning behind it, even if it's probably just symbolic. It's not like the scars, the, the swells on, or they're not just about uh, collecting scars or counting, counting the, the number of people you've killed, but they also sort of a way of honoring uh, the, the fall and the person you, you, uh, you took from this world. Yeah, and their religion makes it more powerful <clears throat> since they're all about like, the tracks they walk on and the swazins symbolize like the tracks that they ended. So if you imagine it like a, a bunch of small streams coming into a river, the more powerful person becomes like a bigger and bigger river as they keep ending people's tracks, kind of. That's why Snare's so powerful and scary even to his own people even though the guy said they always make fun of him you learn why they're not supposed to make fun of him when he died <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's sad like he's so scary and they still don't respect him so. <laughs> and speaking of how scary he is uh, when him and Kellis fight Kellis spares him and doesn't, doesn't kill him when he could have I wondered who would win that fight. Well, now you know. Yeah, but yeah. I wasn't sure at the time who would come out. There's like the most powerful barbarian in this world, it seems like. And I think he did punch Kellis, and Kellis like seemed surprised. <laughs> so Kellis doesn't have his grasp on the absolute either. He's still out here getting surprised by things. He tells him he needs to keep him around so he can learn about war. How true that is, is debatable. How true anything any of these characters say are debatable. Though, when Kellis was explaining the Dunyan to Mayor, I think that that was one of the more honest bits of Kellis because he didn't know how much Moingus had told him. He had to be like, he couldn't get caught lying right at the beginning. He needed to like be truthful till he could see what Moingus said to 
break near, which is about the trackless step. Step is trackless, eh? <laughs> yeah, that's the part where I got a bit lost. Because um, the whole time, Kellis was essentially trying to um, either, like, seduce or, or sort of force Nayor into trusting him and 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 succumbing to his will, but then your way seems to resist. Um, and then uh, Kells brings up the trackless step for some reason, and that completely uh, that completely shuts Neor down. And uh, I didn't quite understand why that was, or why it Kellis mentioned the trackless step in the first place. Because Kellis uses words as weapons, so like when he talks, it's like statistics. You can find a st statistic oh, no. to back up any single fact you want, right? Like even opposite things, like sugar's good, sugar's bad. You could say either through a statistic and be technically right if you ignore all the other facts. So Kellis is always looking for a way to do that. And he had learned enough about the Sylvendi to kind of try to make him break his customs. And he decided that like using the trackless step that they worship would be the shortest path. And he came to find that that was the same path that Moingus had chose to break near the first time and since then Nair has spent 30 years just thinking about how he got broke and how he became a weapon of a slave that he loved and there was also the part that talked about like his escape from the compound he like carved a bunch of swazins into his arms and took off over the hill and Nair cried and Nair's mom cried and they weren't sure whether it was like because Skiapa just died Nair's father just died or whether it was because Melindus was leaving and then as soon as Kellis and Nair leave that his wife Anisi is sitting there crying and it once again is like was this for Kellis or was this for Nair? Yeah, I, I really liked how the... Immediately after that, you just find out that this Anisi had told Kellis everything he needed to know about Nair. And she, she didn't even need to speak. But Kellis leaves oh. it open as if she doesn't... He doesn't know how far Anisi's betrayal was, kind of. Nair's mad now. That's why he decided to start a new tribe. <laughs> carved a swazen into Sarway's arm and now she's his tribe he says oh I didn't I didn't think that's interesting I, I didn't think of it as him starting any tribe uh, but that's a cool way to think about it I thought that he, he was more like welcoming her into the tribe he already has or like her becoming like Skilvendi in some way the moment he like left the Utamut he, he I don't even know if the book necessarily says this, but just 
he accepted that everyone there was dead without him to defend the Utmut that the other Sylvendi would just go in and take them all. So Anisi is gone in his eyes. He's going all like he's going to be gone for a year or two traveling to Shimei. By the time he gets back, raiding parties will have taken everything that the Utmut own because their leader isn't there anymore. Yeah, I didn't think of the implications of that, but the, I did find it strange that the he left his tribe as the chieftain just there under no apparent protection of like other warriors. So I, I guess what you're, what you're saying makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, that yeah, his, his tribe wouldn't really be able to survive without him. Yeah, his desire for revenge was just more powerful than the customs, which he doesn't even really believe now anyways. I think he kind of does love NEC, but I don't think he loves anyone else in the Sylvani tribe. Well, they certainly haven't been very welcoming towards him. <laughs> They're not. Um... But I, yeah, I like the way that uh, Callus and Neora leaving the Ultimate sort of mirrored Moangas leaving the Ultimate. Um, even though, like, the whole time Neora was sort of trying to prevent Callus from doing the same thing that Moangas did, like, in the end, it seemed that uh, both Callus and Moangas were able to seduce, if, if not Neora's wife, then his mother. Um, and there's also the one moment where um, Neor beats Moangas because he feel like he feels like he, he, he's being inappropriate um, for a slave, and then he has this uh, he sort of thinks about like how like what violence does to men and how it's sort of this like act of intimacy and it 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 might reveal the the need that the one person has for the other and how they sort of try to achieve that through violence and then the next things he does he he, he let he has a he has a Kellis beat up um i thought that was interesting and it and it's just journalism it made me think about more carefully about the moments when uh, when New York is being violent towards other people like what that actually means what it represents um you know, if it's just an act of a defense or if it's, if it's him trying to express something that maybe he's not able to put into words. Hmm. He's a violent man. Well, the, the most violent of men, right? <laughs> yeah, and then their, name, their naming system is weird because Skiatha is his dad, so he's snared near Urskiatha, whereas like that Confus and Xerius go Ikari first, like their last name first. Yeah, I, I love that detail about the world, um, like the fact that they use the last name first name system, like naming basis, like it's such a small thing, but it makes it, it, it makes it feel very distinct. Um, I, I don't think it's something I've uh, really encountered in a lot of fantasy. 
And the fact that the skill vendor use a different naming system, like that's also, it, it just adds to the, uh, like the, the depth and the, the detail of the world. And, and I, I love that about the, about the world building. Like it's been lived in and there's thousands of years of history with it, sort of. It, it is interesting. For a debut book too. It still blows my mind that this is his first, first book. I started wondering reading this book how many spoilers he might have left in the second series for the third series. Because he for sure did, even though he said the third series might never come out. Hmm. He had the idea for it. And the way he wrote stuff for later into this series i can only imagine that maybe the confusing bits of the second apocalypse were meant to be confusing hmm. i don't know maybe i give r scott baker more credit than he deserves but i don't think he does anything without purpose or without like multiple connections to multiple parts of the book. It's, it's really weird. It's different than other fantasies I've read in that way. Everything does seem really deliberate. There's no accidents. And speaking of accidents, uh, Sir Wave finds the, the boy and tells him to run, which is a, probably a bad idea and sets off this whole chain of events. Um, and she has a, a chance to leave, a chance to escape. But um, that doesn't work out too well for her or the two men who find her. Yeah, I mean, that's an, uh, that's an interesting scene where she's, uh, like, she starts fleeing, and then she thinks about Kellis and decides that... Uh, for some reason, she has like it's, it's better that she stays with him, or that he's so important to her that she doesn't want to leave him, even though it means staying with New York and uh, you know living through all the terrible things that he does to her. Um, I don't know if it shows that uh, like Kellis's influence is so large. Like, I don't even know if Kellis is trying to be so, like, have such a great control over her, or if it's just her projecting herself so much onto him. Um, like, she essentially, and she, she essentially ends up, like, believing that he is a, he's a god walking among men, and that he, like, he's chosen her to be his, uh, his uh, betrothed. Which is, uh, I don't know, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and she, uh, well, she thinks that she's carrying his baby too, right? So she thinks that it's a, uh, he's already, that they're, they have this connection with each other. She, he tells her directly that they've never even slept together. <laughs> yeah. Like, but it's, but it's your baby. Yeah. She's like, well, no, but whatever. That's her na naivety. She just 
is so hopeful she'll put blinders up everywhere. Just shows how willing she is to be blind to things around her. I kind of wondered if yeah. she can if she convinced herself of this to to try and have something that she could latch onto just to to a way of coping just to have something to live for or something yeah. to, to you know move on with I, I sort of read it more as her doing that to 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 cope with the situation like like for the past like weeks she's been raped by a Nior like every night now she's pregnant with his baby. So her making herself believe that the baby is callous is like someone who she actually thinks cares about her and who's been sort of nice to her, I think, is a way of uh, lessening the the hardship of it or like the, the, the truth of it that, you know, she's she's being pregnant with her rapist baby, which like is in itself a terrible thing. Um, so I, I think I read it more the, the way that you did, Steve. And she does she does uh, end up killing one of the men, one of the two soldiers who who find her when she considers fleeing. And you kind of feel like that she takes a turn when she kills one of them with the knife, and uh, kind of feel like something something changes with her character that may have some, have significance later. I'm not sure if it does or not, but kind of the way I read it. I think at least it shows her that, you know, maybe she's a little bit stronger than she generally lets on. Um, obviously, like, she's not, like, a super strong character. Um, but even compared to the other women that... Um, she was uh, enslaved, or they were captured with her by the by the other Skelendi. Like sh she's the one who seemed more in like in control of herself and or handling the situation better. And that sets up a whole chain of events that they are fleeing. And I wondered because they're they're fleeing for a lot for a long time. <laughs> it feels like a long time that they're fleeing. They're riding their horses to death, and they're doing whatever it takes to. They're going for days without sleep, and uh, they must be whoever's pursuing them must be really dedicated to be chasing them for that long. You mean the 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 Kidril who are chasing them, or uh, uh, Kellis and 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 you're being dedicated? Uh, well, both. <laughs> Well, I think Nayora and Kellis, uh, like, they don't really have any any option. Like, they know they, like, either they manage to get away or they're dead. Or at least Nayora is because he's Gilvendi. And uh, the the Anans who are not really friends or fans of this Gilvendi. Um, yeah, but I don't know about the Kitril. I don't, I don't remember if there is a real an explanation why they keep chasing them. I mean, I guess the fact that they killed like a large part of the the group or the, the patrol patrol group uh, might be a reason enough in itself. I think they killed 14 people. So 
they were expecting like a small army hmm. and as they gave chase they realized it was less so the desire to catch the two people that had killed the 14 people became great yeah and i guess also the kidrill they are considered like a elite troop so it's it makes sense you would want to punish people who like killed one of the most important people in your in your army in one of the chapter 14 the beginning there's a quote uh some men some say men continue continually war against circumstances but i say perpetually flee what are the works of men if not a momentary respite a heading place soon to be discovered by catastrophe. Life is endless flights before the hunter we call the world. It's a good quote. Makes me yeah. think about history and all of the ruins that are underwater right now. <laughs> Pompeii. Yeah. You can build up awesome things and then it will all get destroyed. There was another, I, I can't find it now, but now that we're discussing them being pursued, there was one of the, the villages they went through that grew, um, there was something that it grew, and I, I wondered if that was the same place that Esme was in, or Esme it was in, um, earlier in the book, but I couldn't find it, and I just remembered it. I don't know if that rings a bell for the review. Or if that's something that I was looking too deep into it. Yeah, I'm not too sure how close they had came to each other. I meant to check. I meant to check the map, and then I. I didn't. Yeah, I'm looking at the map, but I'm not. Like, uh, Sarway, just having Kellis be nice to her and maybe learn her language in three days or whatever it says he does, like becomes attached and thinks she loves Kellis and Essenet just by having Sarsalus be nice to her for one week just gets swooned. So this world is a place where just a little bit of kindness is so out of the ordinary that it's powerful. Or fake powerful or fake well that's why i wondered about the end of this this part is when they fall down, when they go down the cliff and it's, they're at the very last and everything you know their horses are dying and they can't continue and <laughs> at the end when they fall to the bottom um and when, the, when they find the, the knights at the bottom and they tell them uh, uh so have you seen any have you seen any fugitive criminals about and Senor says, why do you ask? And he says, because I'm dying for the lack of honest conversation. It's not the conclusion I was expecting, this part. Yeah, I was confused by the very last line. Um, I wasn't exactly sure what they were referring to. So I understood that. So the men who chased them are not the same men who uh, encircle them at the very end. So the men who were chasing were the the Nensu or the the Kintrail, right? 
and but the men who uh who they sort of found at the bottom of the hill uh they're Conryans. they uh come from a trampus and they're part of the holy war um Which but i wasn't proyas is that right trampus mm -hmm. pro proyas yes so a, a trampus is the military fortress that uh Zynemus is um sort of in charge of i think and i think the leader of this group is somehow related to Zynemus. i don't know if he's like a cousin or something um but they're definitely uh did definitely somehow um connected to to Proyas, for sure. Was that one of the parts that you were um, a little bit confused with? Katerina, you mentioned a couple, there was a couple of parts and you were kind of had to reread. Yeah, so I was mostly the, the parts I was confused by was mostly the sort of the mind games that Callus and uh, Nayor play with each other like trying to sort of decide, like guess what the other was thinking or doing and how they were trying to sort of uh, control each other with what they were saying. Um, but I did get a little confused about uh, yeah, the, the, like the very last, the very last lines that the, the leader of the group that they meet uh, at the very end about what he said, the, the, the lines that you quoted. Um, the because I'm dying for the lack of honest conversation. I wasn't exactly sure what that meant, but maybe it's something that we'll only find out in part five. Because I don't know exactly what happens in part five. I haven't reread that far. Yeah, me either. I'm ready to get there. <laughs> I almost started last night, but I decided I shouldn't. When I when I go to the get to the warrior prophet, I'm going to be good and just go part by part, week by week. <laughs> so I'll uh, I'll resist the urge to skip ahead. Well, we'll see how successful you are at that. <laughs> yeah, I'll try. <laughs> this stuff was hard for me because I, for some reason, really liked the whole chase sequence. Who knows if it was three days or four days long, but how many ever days it took yeah. and they're like contemplating if they can kill all of them I think Nair asks how many there are and Kellis says 68 and there's like can we kill them because <laughs> he doesn't know how capable Kellis is I guess only that he's probably more capable than him and he can catch arrows midair <laughs> oh yeah yeah they bred those fast reflex or fast twitch muscles for 2,000 yeah. years, so they're just real good at certain things. Yeah, I mean, I for some reason, I like I can accept that like Kellis is intellectually superior to everyone, but the fact that he also has like ninja warrior skills as well, I, I found too, a little bit too much. Like it's 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 a bit infuriating, yeah. honestly. Yeah. It wasn't the arrows that did that for me. It was Kellis holding Nair over a cliff with one hand. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I've I've tried to hold out a hundred pounds out from my body before. It doesn't work. Yeah, it's kind of tough. So that's like some real freak strength right there. Yeah. 
catching arrows, I might could do that. I think there's a guy on YouTube that does that. Name. Lars Anderson, he sh shoots arrows crazy and can catch them. Hmm. Yeah, I think he also uh, catches the blade of Neor's sword, like with his palms, and just throws the sword away. Um, but yeah, um, holding Neor over the over that uh, ridge was uh, maybe a bit of a stretch. Yeah, you just, I don't know. They don't make Kellis out to seem like a giant, but I guess you never know what 2,000 years of genetic breeding can do to a group of people. When it goes into <laughs> Kellis' eyes and it talks about how he doesn't see faces like like human beings, like there's no such thing as a being to Kellis. It's just like everyone's an animal or a tool, an animal he can control. A bunch of muscles behind the face that he sees instead of the person in themselves. Hmm. And then Sarway, when it's in her eyes, she's like, "Oh, he really loves me," and she sees she sees Kellis cry. But. I don't think that a domain does anything without a purpose. And it talks about like when Moengus was a slave and he always just smelt like shit and he was just hunched over and sad. And then one day he just like looked like a king, like wiped away all that stuff in a heartbeat. And it says how crazy it was for Nair to see like the shift because they're capable of that. They're le less human, much less human. Hmm. And him, uh, him convincing Nair to to pose as a convert, I thought that was another. Um, I'm surprised he was able to do that because I didn't think that was something that he would ever agree to. But his, uh, it's got, it goes back to that whole back and forth of the the constant maneuvering and trying to get leverage and trying to get over on each other. Yeah, New York is really uh, obsessed with the idea of, of getting vengeance and then killing Moengus. And the guys, he will, uh, you know, enter the trackless step in, in order to achieve that, uh, achieve that goal. Um, because uh, killing uh, some dude you haven't seen in 30 years is going to cure you of all your trauma that you've accumulated since you last saw him. <laughs> it's funny the way people think sometimes. <laughs> I see that happen in the real world myself, though, so. Yeah. Not brutally, but. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I understand why he thinks that. Um, like, it's. But it's always interesting to me that you know he's someone who clearly is very intelligent and can in some ways like see through things that other people can but then in some ways just very uh narrow-minded as well um and, and can see that like 
Yeah, killing Wang is probably not going to solve any of the problems he's been having for the past three decades. Um, but but I guess it speaks to the um, the, the like the immensity of the trauma that he's carried with him since Moengas betrayed him, and and how that impacted him. Um, so I guess like at the end of the day, it's like it's just really tragic and like. Nayor is, like, to me, is, like, one of the most tragic characters I really ever encountered. Um, I re remem remember it describing, like, the chaos of his life after Malangus left as a whirlwind, and he was, like, trying to find peace in the middle of the whirlwind. And I think, like, trying to become the eye of his own whirlwind by going after Moengus, I think, is kind of how he sees it. Mm. He left his life in complete chaos, and if he can kill Moengus, he can become the chaos. But in reality, it won't solve anything, just like you say. <laughs> Everyone thinks something's going to solve something until they get it, and then there's just something new to solve. That's just that's humanity. That's life. So you guys are you, have, you haven't started the last part, you, neither of you have. Nope, I, uh, you know, it's uh, it takes me long enough to read this part, and I think it takes me even longer to like compile my notes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, haven't really had time, but I will start once we once we finish this. Cool. And I will wait four days and then I'll just try to push through real quick like I always do hope, hope it works seems to be working out pretty good for you so far I did get a good amount of notes this time probably twice as many as two weeks ago nice yeah my oh, notes also see. keep getting longer yeah I I started with just like a half a page of notes and then I realized how much I was not writing down that I thought I would remember. So now it's like a two pages of notes. Anything else you, uh, either of you can remember from this part? Well, I'm, I'm scrolling through my extensive notes to see if we <laughs> missed anything. Um, But I think, like we talked about, we talked about um, Nayor and his history with Moengas. Um, we we talked about the Kellis and a little bit we learn about the Dunyane and how they think. Um, and we also, uh, I think, discussed Surway and and her character in, at length, which I think, like to me, like those were the main points. Um, the most important things. And I just, a uh, couple of quotes. It's mostly about Surway thinking that she's nothing, which is just heartbreaking to read. The way she just thinks of herself as like being completely worthless. Um...
they couldn't hear you. Oh, sorry. Uh, what are some of the quotes that you have uh, down? The survey. Okay, so I have this one where she talks about justice. And she says, justice, despite all her vanities and all her peevish sins, she meant something. She was something. She was survey, daughter of Ingera, and she, she deserved far more than what she had been given. She would have dignity or she would die hating. But then she thinks, like, then, then Nayora basically rescues them. Like, she thinks... Like when you, I think she says this when she um, when New York rescues them from the the other school of Andy. but then like she realizes pretty quickly that um, basically it's or, like her situation is not going to change for much better, and she says um, worthless fool. Ever since New York had thrust her blood spattered his blood spattered frame against her, she had understood. There was only whim, there was only submission, there was only pain, death, and dread. Justice was but another treacherous Ganem idol. So, it's, uh, it's a pretty hopeless way of viewing the world, but I think totally understandable in her case. Anything you can think of that we may have uh, missed? Um, I think we pretty well covered everything. If you take a hint that I gave in this part with a hint that I gave in part two or that Katarina gave in part two, you could make a really hard deduction really early in this book though <laughs> no spoilers but yeah i like how i like how both of you dance around some some things i thought the quote about the swazon was good but let me see Yeah, maybe before you find it, there was another part that I liked where um, I think the, well, it was Kellis and Nayor, they were just, they were talking about the Dunyane and how they sort of deceive normal people. Um, and they were sort of arguing about whether that's okay or not. Like whether the fact like that, that the Dunyane are morally superior or sorry, not morally, intellectually superior whether that gives them the the right to manipulate other people, and uh, Kells was sort of comparing the Janine to to parents who you know uh, control like con control and manipulate their children into doing the things that they need them to do, and uh, Nayor argues that like that's that's unfair because the normal like world-born men are not able to defend themselves against the Janine. Um, and it's, and it, rem and it reminded me from my quote from one of the earlier chapters. I think it's actually maybe one of the epigraphs. It's a, uh, it's a quote from a Genesis about, uh, ignorance and, and deceit. And, uh, it says, uh, to be ignorant and to be deceived are two different things. To be ignorant is to be a slave of the world. 
to be to be deceived is to be the slave of another man the question will always will be why when then when why then when all men are ignorant and therefore already slaves does this letter slavery sting us so so why are you more upset when another person deceives you makes a fool of you than when than by the fact that you already ignorant and deceived by the world altogether um and just remind me of the conversation that nayor and uh Kellis had in, in in this part of the book and how uh i guess it's like in in essence nayor's trauma and why he hates moenga so much is, is because of the fact that he was deceived and that uh moenga's betrayed the trust that uh nayor put in him why he's so hard for Kellis to navigate because he's built up so many walls around that small incident probably like I don't know how long it said Moingus lived there but I can't imagine longer than maybe a year so if he was there for a year and the next 30 years of Nair's life is like ruined by this one guy that did something to him for one year and that's why when he's talking to Kellis, Kellis will be like, oh, we should do this instantly, even though Ethan's like, yeah, that's what I want to do. He'll say no, because he just has to second guess himself in order to conquer the Dunyan. Cut him short. Don't let him lead you anywhere. But they'll try to find other ways to lead you places. I guess that's what the next part's all about. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm done with my quote. <laughs> I found the quote for the Swiss one. It says, The man you have killed is gone from the world, Sarway. He exists only here, a scar upon your arm. It is the mark of his absence. All the ways his soul will not move, and of all the acts he will not commit, a mark of the weight you now bear. So if Nair tells her this, and that's like his belief, how much does he bear? He's killed like tons of his own uncles. He's responsible for his father's death. Like he bears the entirety of the Utmut. Um, he just like left and let them all get killed, basically. Yeah. He's got a lot of weight. That's why all these lives that come into him are like little streams that just add to the giant river that is Nair's life, the giant track. Hmm. There was another quote somewhere, but the whole section where Nair and Kellis talk to each other is crazy. Anytime you can find Kellis talking in this any of these books. It's crazy. <laughs> the glimpses you get behind his eyes, like first person Kellis. They're really rare and really revealing. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that originally Baker 
did not even want to make Kellis a POV character, which on one like that would make the book very interesting, but also I don't know how you would really be able to understand any anything about his character whatsoever. Like he would be just so nebulous. Or or if you would see him, I guess if maybe if you see him through the eyes of the other characters, then you would just assume that he was like a super nice and kind of person and very thoughtful and then maybe like somewhere very late into the game where you would realize that he's like this emotionless, uh, almost like a machine type of person. You'd only get like him leaving what's his name in the snow and just not even not even seeming to care, but maybe he had to do it. Until you get into his eyes and realize that humans aren't very important to him. The only thing that's important is the absolute, whatever that is, the shortest path. The probability trance. <laughs> it kind of described the probability trance one time as Kellis was like riding on his horse, all the branches of what could be, and in him just trying to find the best path to walk and talking to Nair because Nair has that defense mechanism built up from his dad. Hmm. I'm glad I'm reading this with both of you because <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot. It's true that it is a lot denser than a lot of other fantasy. Right. But I like dense, so that's fine. <laughs> My favorite books are the books that make you think after you read them. The longer the book makes me think, generally the better it. I'll consider it. Bad thoughts or good thoughts. Just thinking. Yeah, I, I haven't really stopped thinking about this book since the first time I read it. So um, it definitely falls into that category. And they say after people read Baker, they put on like a a Baker lens to the whole world where they they themselves try to walk the probability trance just to help help your own life out. Or you just really? become very depressed, I think. Yeah. <laughs> that. That's more of the path I've taken. <laughs> I feel like... Very cynical, very depressed. Made me a lot more empathetic. The world's not as depressing as this, but after reading this book, I thought a lot more about what motivates other people and what other people might be thinking. How I can trick people into doing what I want them to. The only one I found is by just saying real quick. If you tell someone real quick after you say something, they'll usually do it. It's, it's one trick I've learned in life. The secret, yeah. That's the secret. You say, get me something. It's on their own time. But if you just say, oh, real quick, then it usually happens real quick. Well, I'll, I'll try I'll try it the next time I'm at work. <laughs> see yeah, how I go. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, let report back next week. Let us know how that goes. <laughs> I'll try good. that this week too. Yeah. 
Well, cool. Well, thanks again. So every week I look forward to chatting with both of you. It was weird last week not talking about to, to you guys. So glad we're back at it this week. So we'll be back uh, next Friday to talk about part five, the final part. Sounds good to me. Awesome. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks uh, for having me, for listening. Of course. We'll see everyone, or we'll, we'll, we'll see you. We won't see you next week, but we'll, you'll be hearing from us next week, <laughs> next Friday. So thanks, everybody.